This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I stand here humbled, being the first sitting president of the United States to have an opportunity to speak at Ebenezer Sunday service. He followed the path of Moses, a leader of inspiration, calling on the people not to be afraid, and always, always, as my grandfather would say, keep the faith. He followed the path of Joseph, a believer in dreams and the divinity they carry and the promise they hold. And like John the Baptist, he prepared us for the greater hope ahead, one who came to bear witness to the light. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a nonviolent warrior for justice who followed the word and the way of his Lord and his Savior. Those are some excerpts from President Joe Biden's sermon delivered Sunday at Martin Luther King Jr.'s former church, Ebenezer Baptist, in Atlanta. The headline from National Public Radio, Biden becomes first sitting president to deliver a Sunday sermon at MLK's church. Nothing remarkable about that, of course, but as you read down in this story, there are a few things missing, like maybe a quote from Barry Lynn of Americans United for the separation of church and state. Why wasn't it in there? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So what are we talking about here, the sermon itself or the coverage of the president's sermon? This may sound like a strange way to address this, but I think it might help our listeners, especially any Catholic leaders, but lots of folks pay attention to things that popes say. And when you cover speeches by popes, it's a classic textbook example of trying to figure out what the media considers to be real. Because what is real is what is real news. And I can't tell you how often as a reporter and then later as a columnist, but especially as a reporter when I was sitting in a newsroom, I had arguments with editors about texts that would come out when the Pope would speak somewhere. When you look at an address by the Pope, you scan through it and you try to find out anything the Pope said that had any possible impact on American politics. Was there a reference to the environment? Was there a reference to immigration? There had to be a comment somewhere in that sermon that had something to do with the real world. And the real world, by definition, once again, was political. Don't worry, I'm going to get to Biden here in just a second. Now, I argued with my editors, not that I wanted to avoid those quotes, but I would also look in the piece and try to figure out what was the Pope actually trying to talk about. Like anybody else, when the Pope gets up into a pulpit, 
or start speaking about something, he has what the late great Haddon Robinson, the greatest Protestant teacher of preaching in the previous generation or two, he used to say everybody has a big idea when they stand up there to speak. And what I found was that day after day after day, the big idea of the Pope's sermons and addresses rarely made it into the press because the big idea usually had something to do with the Bible or the gospel or, lo and behold, Jesus Christ. Or maybe it had something to do with worship or prayer or he had some major subject he got up there to speak about. So what we have in those stories is a chance to analyze what the press considers real and what the press considers not so real. So obviously now you have a president standing on Sunday in a pulpit, and everyone is going to call this a sermon. But what we see in the coverage of this address, and I'm going to call it an address more than a sermon, it's like an inkblot test. You're going to see the values of the different newsrooms that are covering it. And once again, you're looking for what is real. Now, in this case, Biden is helped along greatly by the fact that he's also there to praise an American hero who was also a pastor, a preacher, tremendous preacher. And then sitting nearby is the senator from Georgia who is the pastor of the church. So this is a very unique situation. And what I would say to address your concern, the reason nobody calls the liberal or secular church-state think tanks is because by this point we are already very familiar with the nuanced political language that goes on in black churches, something that has gone on for decades. And this is language that will be used by black cultural conservatives in different ways than black cultural liberals or even theological liberals or whatever, but they're using the same kind of vocabulary. And it's a vocabulary, like I said, that's very nuanced. You don't have to come out and attack anybody. You don't have to come out and use the Bible to beat Republicans with. You don't have to hit them over the head with the Bible over and over and over. And Joe Biden and his speechwriters, because remember, Joe Biden probably wrote very little of this. Joe Biden and his speechwriters have probably read a lot of addresses given in black churches, and they know how to use just enough biblical language, while at the same time today not using explicitly Christocentric language that might be offensive to the dominant people of the Democratic Party. Because remember, the Democratic Party is in a real bind right now. When it comes to grassroots power, the two most important audiences in the modern democratic are absolute, abject secularists. In some cases, atheist agnostics are at the very best from a religious point of view, religious liberals. But at the same time, they have the black church. And Joe Biden would not be president of the United States without the black church rescuing him in the South Carolina primary. But it, when you're facing whether God is real and whether God has anything specific to say and how does that apply to life, 
it's very hard to make the Unitarian Universalists, atheists, and liberal Episcopalians happy at the same time that you're making black Baptist, Pentecostal, and charismatic churches happy. So the, pre the president, you know, had a high bar that he had to clear here. But I think in the thing to think about this time, when you said, should they have called the, the liberal people and ask for outrage about him saying all this stuff in a church? No, that doesn't do liberals any good to attack Joe Biden for that. At the same time, Biden is much more comfortable with religious language and has used it all through his life. He's much more comfortable with that religious language than we saw when Donald Trump tried to stand in a pulpit or stand in even near a pulpit and try to make remarks that somehow required biblical or religious nuance. And especially before he reached the White House and had a massive team of speechwriters. Yeah, I'm sure he had speechwriters before that, but let's face it, Donald Trump says what Donald Trump wants to say. For better and for worse, he improvised a lot of his remarks. Donald Trump on a teleprompter is a radically different man than Donald Trump standing at a podium and saying what he wants to say. So, yes, if he gets up there and starts attacking Democrats as enemies of God and attacking them as, well, to be blunt, he never said baby killers because his own history with abortion is rather mixed. But Donald Trump is going to use blunter language than Joe Biden. And thus, the press has less to criticize with that. But I guarantee you, if Governor DeSantis got up in this pulpit or was invited to this pulpit or was invited to a conservative black Church of God congregation in Atlanta, yes, I think you would have heard comments from church-state groups and stuff about whether or not he implied that God was pro-life, he was implied whatever. And Joe Biden is going to work his way all the way around that, other than the obligatory paragraphs, with explicit references to political events. Now, that was another long answer, because I drew it out with the Pope analogy. But what we see in coverage of this speech is what the reporters and editors want us to see. It's really more about them than it is about Biden. So why I'll pick on National Public Radio, because they were the ones most prominently featuring this in their news coverage, other than the fact that it doesn't serve Biden's interests, that's as cynical as we could be, why didn't they, as reporters, do due diligence and say, you know, if this were Ron DeSantis, we would call Barry Lynn? Oh, no, they have no incentive to do that, because that would only hurt Biden. And by hurting Biden, it only hurts the senator standing next to him, and it only hurts the people whose view of the world they share. The NPR piece, I would give them credit for at least the fact that at the very top of what was a, a short story, I think the it also helps to look at the USA Today report, which was extensive, long, and very political. And also the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the local newspaper's report, is also interesting. But the very first thing you hear from Biden is, you know, here I am and this is intimidating. But then you got language that I didn't see anybody else quoting. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a nonviolent warrior for justice who followed the word and the way of his Lord and Savior. Now, it's interesting. Under Associated Press style, I would have argued 
that word should have been uppercase, because I don't think there's any question that that's a reference to gospel. And there's definitely Lord and Savior should have been uppercase, because I don't think there's any question that that's a, as close as he comes to making an explicit reference to Jesus. There's no question that that's a Christological or theological reference. So we've we got some violations of AP style in this story, even when you know within the limitations of what we're going to have in public radio in terms of the language. It opened with religious, and then here's the pivot. But the sermon quickly turned political, as Biden discussed economic issues and voting rights. And, of course, voting rights and ballot initiatives and all that is the stuff of the Georgia Senate races. So, of course, he's going to talk about that, and he's going to run down a list of other political causes that he supports, implying that Republicans don't. And all of that is bluntly presented as essentially religious. There's one long passage that I think is the heart, what I would say is the heart of this essay, this address, whatever. And he uses over and over a battle for the soul of the nation. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Uh, it's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle between hope and fear, kindness and cruelty, justice and injustice against those. Now, listen carefully to this. Those who traffic in racism, extremism, and insurrection, a battle fought on battlefields and bridges from courthouses and ballot boxes to pulpits and protests. That's a remarkable paragraph. And once again, it's nuanced. He doesn't have to say, and you all know who all those bad people are. You know who is the bad half of that equation. And then he says, at our best, the American promise wins out. And at our best, we hear and heed the injunctions of the Lord, uppercase L this time, and the whispers of the angels. Now, I thought it was interesting. In several reports, including the USA Today and elsewhere, this quote got edited. Sometimes I'll have to go back and watch the entire video. What I've did is read the remarks released by the White House, and it looked like that was a transcription of what he said, not a speech text. But the phrase, and at our best, the American promise wins out, at our best, we hear and heed the injunctions of the Lord and the whispers of the angels. Those two sentences in the middle of that quote got edited out, and there was no sign that material had been removed. And I think that's interesting because the injunctions of the Lord is strong language and the sort of thing that really does point out where the divides are in American public life about who wants to stress what injunctions of the Lord. And he goes on, I don't need to tell you we're not always at our best, we're fallible, we fail and fall, but faith in history teaches us that however dark the night, joy cometh in the morning. Okay, a nuanced scripture reference stuck in there. And then he has a direct reference to scripture, and with that joy comes the commandments of scripture. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, and all thy soul, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Then Biden says, easy to say, easy to say, but very hard to do. And now here's the thesis statement. But in that commandment, in my view, lies the essence of the gospel and the essence of the American promise. Now, friends and neighbors, <laughs> the essence of the gospel and the essence of the American promise, if that was spoken by a Republican, that would be called Christian nationalism. And 
a direct equation of the gospel with the essence of the American promise would fit lots of different people's definitions of Christian nationalism. But I would also notice that, to me, as someone who's been stuck in the middle of a lot of political discussions my whole life, and someone whose political, cultural, moral views are probably best expressed by either the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church or the bishops of Eastern Orthodoxy, love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, you're a pastor, you're a preacher. When you hear, love thy neighbor as thyself, what do you hear the skeptics in the crowd immediately ask? And who is my neighbor? And that equation, love thy neighbor as thyself, and then the response, and who in my is my neighbor? Boy, is that an equation we fight about in American politics all the time. Is my neighbor an unborn child? Is my neighbor an immigrant? An immigrant who's legal is my neighbor, but one who is illegal is not. Can't you hear all the political debates that come out of that? So that's, that's the thesis statement of this whole address right there. And it got into very little of the coverage. So Terry, I'm intrigued by your Christian nationalism statement before. And here again, the cynic in me says, I don't think that they were really paying much attention to what the president said, because that little juxtaposition and there it is in the transcript of the actual speech, is pretty glaring. As you said, if that were spoken by a conservative, that would be labeled, immediately labeled, and flagged for the reader as a statement of Christian nationalism. Because it was applied, though, to issues that don't strike the press as threatening. Christian nationalism is when the religious heritage of our nation is applied to issues that threaten you. For example, conservatives will freak out if someone says exactly that kind of equation and then immediately goes from that into, on one hand, something like immigration, a subject where the Roman Catholics would be with you, or to gay rights where the Episcopal Church would be with you. You see what I'm saying? So once again, it's about looking at the text and saying to yourself, what's the news here? And the question, what is the news here, is always essentially problematic in the sense that it's what's news to my readers. And to get to your readers, of course, it has to be what's news to my editors. And my entire career is one long debate with editors over whether they know what large portions of their readers would think is the news in a papal address or in a presidential address, or whatever. The editors may not represent the complexity of the public and its interest when it comes to subjects related to religion, prayer, worship, etc. I mean, right now, I guarantee you, in major newsrooms across the country, editors are sitting there going, gosh, other than those bad conservative people hating Pope Francis, what is this Latin mass thing all about? You know, they have no understanding the degree of how emotional the attachment is to prayer books and hymn books and liturgies, because that's all essentially religious music. And as I've quoted many times from Bill Moyers, the press is tone deaf to much of the religion music that surrounds them in a lot of these issues. So what's real is the same question as what's 
real news. You know, when you look at it through the viewpoint of an editor. And once again, what is real is political. And what is not real is religion is not all that real. So Biden got up there to talk about real things. And that's essentially political. I guarantee you that the people, the vast majority of the people who attend Ebenezer Baptist Church think religion is real. Oh, yeah. Now, see, I, I don't know that church well enough right now, especially with its, you know, a very liberal Christian thinker standing in its pulpit. I think it's safe to say that that's a more morally liberal congregation than most black churches in the Atlanta area. Right? That would be my guess. But we know that black Democrats are infinitely more conservative on moral and cultural issues than white Democrats. I mean, that shows up over and over and over in polling when the pollsters dare to ask the question. Like I said, this tension between the black church and the beliefs and the values and the language and the culture of the black church and the intensely secular world of white religious liberals, atheists, agnostics, and nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That is a big story in democratic politics that doesn't get covered all that often. Although you and I have discussed the fact it's surfacing a little now as the Latino vote begins to split. And people are having to admit, you know, that split in the Latino vote might have something to do with religion. Look at who goes to church how do Latinos who go to church all the time, how do they vote compared to Latinos who don't go to church all the time? The same thing happens in the black community. Black Americans who go to church all the time versus black Americans who don't is another divide, and the Democratic Party is kind of trying to figure out how to make them both happy. How well does the media coverage of Biden's appearance there at Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta how well does it illustrate the Mattingly-ism of, in journalism, there's good religion and bad religion? Well, that's essentially what this is about, because Biden is up there to praise a litany of issues that constitute the good religion from the viewpoint of the American establishment in blue zip codes on the two coasts, on the East Coast and the West Coast. He is there to say, thank you, Dr. Martin Luther King, for standing up for the good and the just and whatever. And I'm not going to get into any discussions up here about whether current race theory fits well with judging people by their character instead of the color of their skin. You know, I know DeSantis and others loves to quote that, so we're not going to mention that today. We're not going to get distinctly into racism. It's essentially an address about what the left has long called the social gospel. And in the era of the religious right, the religious right, quite frankly, has its own social gospel. What's fascinating is to try to find the places in American life where these two different views of the social gospel overlap. And I've always looked back at a very interesting time in American politics where you had a very strong friendship between two senators who wrote lots of legislation together, one a conservative Catholic, Rick Santorum, and the other a Jewish Orthodox Jew, modern Orthodox Jew, Joe Lieberman. And they produced a lot 
of joint legislation because a they were willing to compromise and b they looked for the places where their faith overlapped and that's not what this sermon is about and that's not what your typical frankly republican sermon in a white suburban megachurch is going to be about it's about speaking to the crowd now there's a famous moment here some people would say is there a kind of endorsement here, an illegal en endorsement going on in what Biden did? Biden is not there to receive the endorsement of the church because he already knows he has it from most of them. We, we, we. He doesn't need to define who we is. We is all of you guys and me. But I think there was an interesting moment back at the creation of the religious right where a very skilled man at a podium in the form of Ronald Reagan, with people like Peggy Noonan and others writing for him eventually. But Ronald Reagan always rewrote his own, Peggy Noonan stresses, he always rewrote his own speeches, and that's a lot of his best language came from him. So who wrote the famous phrase from Ronald Reagan, speaking to the Houston Ministerial Association, where he looked out at the audience and said, now look, I know in this political game, I know that you cannot endorse me. What I did was come here today, and I want you to know that I endorse you. Now, that remark by Ronald Reagan is actually a pretty good summary of what Joe Biden is trying to do here. He's trying to say, we're in this together. God's on our side, and I endorse Martin Luther King, and that means I also endorse the senator who's now the pulpit of this church, and we're all in this together. That's what politicians do. 95% of the time when they speak to religious audiences. We're in this together, and God is on our side. That's fascinating, but that's essentially what they're there to do. With about a minute here, if Governor Ron DeSantis decides to take a stab at 2024, and in the course of that campaign appears at, let's say, a prominent, very conservative megachurch, maybe even on a Sunday morning, and does something akin to a sermon... How will the coverage, at least in, in your view, how will the coverage likely be different? It depends on what issues he addresses, and it depends on whether the editors who will be guiding the coverage, the producers for television, etc., it depends on the degree to which they feel threatened by what he claims is linked to the doctrines of Christianity. And at that point, they're going to be saying that he's guilty of Christian nationalism. But what we had in this one was a similar equation being used, but with maybe kinder words than Republicans have used in recent years when talking about abortion and parental rights and whatever else. And he was speaking in the context of the black church, which has decades and decades and decades of skill and nuance when it comes to addressing public life in a pulpit, and simply stated, Protestant megachurches in America, white Protestant especially, they are not viewed with the respect when it comes to cultural, political, and moral and social issues as the black church. And I can understand, because of their radically different histories and the civil rights movement, the legacy of the civil rights movement, etc., I can see where journalists may come down 
on that sort of issue. But that's why I think it's so important for Republicans and for cultural conservatives to start finding the conservative, mixed racial, black, Latino, charismatic, Pentecostal, Church of God, black Southern Baptist, etc. They're going to need to find some different audiences, and then they're going to need to stand in those pulpits and be nuanced enough to speak to them. Now, will the press cover those speeches? That will then be the issue. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he is founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.